So before we start, even before we pray, I'll have you know that the source of power in this presentation will not be PowerPoint. I'm using this as a visual. I'm not accustomed to using visuals. I'm accustomed to preaching the Word of God. And I only made this available because I think there are some ideas here that are a bit complex for hearing with the ear. They'd be easier to understand with the, with a picture. But if I conclude a few minutes in that this is a distraction, what we're going to do is stop using it. Is everyone okay with that? Yes. And we'll go on with the preaching. All right. Let's bow our heads for a prayer and we'll begin. Our Father in heaven, I ask by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would join us here, that you would help us to understand what is true and what is right in your Bible. And I ask for this gift in the name of Jesus. Amen. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Jude. We're looking at Jude and looking at verse 5. Jude, verse 5. I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. Several ideas I see in the verse. Is it clear to you in this passage that the very same people that God saved were the ones that he later destroyed? Do you see it in the passage? Is it clear to you in this passage that whoever Jude was writing to already knew that? And yet Jude went forward to remind them of that fact. Why would he remind them of something they already knew? We already knew the same thing. We knew that the people that God saved out of Egypt, he later destroyed. That's a solemn thought. When is it that that thought has an impact on my life and character? It's not at the point that I know it's so. It's at the point that I am thinking about it. I want to say that thought again. The truth of God's judgment doesn't affect me when it's a fact stored somewhere back in my memory. It affects me when I'm thinking about it. Let me show you this in one more passage, two more. Turn with me in your Bibles to Second Peter. Second Peter. We're looking at chapter 1. Verse 12, Wherefore I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though you know them and be established in the present truth. Can you see in this verse these ideas? First of all, that to know the present truth is no evidence that you don't need to hear it. Do they know the present truth? They know it, and yet Peter is going to tell them again. Is this going to be the last time he's going to tell them? What does he indicate? He's going to put them always in remembrance. Does he have an obligation to re be repeating this truth to them re continually? We know he does, because if he did not, he would be, what does it say? He'd be negligent. So he has, an, he has a responsibility to repeat to them truths over and over that they already know. I hope that this just shows you the truth, that the ideas of present truth only affect us when we're thinking about them. It's not when we believe that they're facts, but when they have our attention that they change the heart. You've heard that we would do well to spend a thoughtful hour on the life of Jesus, or especially the closing scenes. Why? Is it because we're continually learning some new fact or facet? Not necessarily. It would be worthwhile to spend a thoughtful hour if you already knew all of the facts and all of the facets. It's because those truths don't change you except when they have 
your attention. We would do well to think about the judgment because we don't know about it. No, but because the solemn scenes of what's going on in heaven only affect us when they have our attention. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians chapter 15. We're looking at verse 1. Jude said, I'm going to remind you of things you once knew. Peter said, I'm going to tell you repeatedly about things that you still know. Paul goes further. He says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein you stand. Did they receive it the first time he told them? They did receive it. Have they been faithful to it? They have been faithful and are currently being faithful. So what is he going to do? He's going to tell them the gospel again. The idea that the gospel is only for those who haven't heard it is not true. The idea that the gospel is only for those who aren't faithful to it isn't so. Those who have heard it and those that are currently faithful still need to hear it again. Verse 2. By which also you are saved, if you keep in memory or in mind the things which I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. It is a salvational issue, this idea that the truth needs to be continually revived and have our attention. The gospel saves me while it has my attention. When it loses my attention, it ceases to have an impact on my life. And for this reason, the Bible is longer than three sentences. You may have wondered, why is the Bible so full of stories, so full of illustrations, so full of, of enigmas in some cases? Why did God not just plainly say the gospel in terms that could not be misunderstood? May I suggest to you one reason? It's because God knows that those enigmas and those illustrations keep our attention longer than plain statements. And it's not the facts that we need so much as to have a continual guidance of our mind to these truths. Do you follow the idea of what I just said? So we're talking today about the covenants. And I suppose that for many, we already have a decent understanding of them. Have I proved to you already that this would be no evidence that we don't need to hear them again? Go ahead and go to the next slide. It may be interesting to you and may not be that the term New Covenant or Second Covenant or Testament is in the Bible ten times. That this phrase, the Old Covenant or the First Covenant, is only in the Bible three times. But the term Everlasting Covenant is in the Bible fifteen times. All which doesn't prove anything, but it illustrates a reality. The Bible doesn't spend very much time on the Old Covenant. In fact, the Old Covenant did not exist for a very long time. Where does it give its attention? It's to this everlasting covenant that is named the New Covenant. You can go ahead and go to the next slide. I'm not going to spend much time here at all, but look at the upper left. God promised to scatter his people should they be unfaithful to the covenant. To greatly summarize the history of 1,500 years, this happened. What do I mean? I mean that God had an intention when he made his covenant with Abraham and then a covenant with Moses. His intention was that faithful covenant people would accomplish his work. But if they would not be faithful to his covenant, what did he say he would do to them? He said he would scatter them, and he did this in the judges. And then he would bring a deliverer, and the deliverer would bring them back together. They were scattered later and brought together. In fact, the final scattering, the one under Babylon, there were prophecies that God would bring them from this. And you know, under Ezra and Nehemiah, God brought them back. Do you know your history well enough to know, did God bring back the same people that he scattered? You know, it was always a remnant of them. It was a remnant of those that were scattered for unfaithfulness that were brought back to do God's work. You can go to the next slide. 
Abraham, the father of the faithful, is illustrated by a root of a tree. Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans 11. We're looking at Romans 11, verses 1. Romans 11, and looking at verse 1. The Bible says, I say the truth, excuse me, I say then, has God cast away his people? Not at all. When you see God forbid in the King James Version, the Greek doesn't say anything like God forbid. Literally, it says no, no. But it was an emphatic way of saying not or never. Has God cast away his people? Not at all. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Look at the logic of Paul in this passage. His question is, has God cast away the Jews? His answer is no. And what reason does he give as proof that God has not cast away the Jews? The fact that he is a Jew. If I turn that logic around backwards, it means that if even one Jew is a Christian... It's proof that God has not cast away the Jews. Otherwise, it wouldn't be, the logic wouldn't work at all. Does that make any sense to what I'm saying? What Paul is saying in this verse is that God never did claim to save the whole bunch. But who did he claim to save? Some. Let's go on. Verse 2. God has not cast away his people which he foreknew. Maybe at some point in your life you'll have an interaction with someone who believes in predestination. I also believe in predestination. The Bible is very clear. Maybe you can keep a Bible here and I mean keep a finger here and turn to it. Turn your Bibles to Second Peter chapter one. And by the time you get there, I might say first Peter. Second Peter chapter one. Yep, first Peter chapter one and verse two. 1 Peter chapter 1 and looking at verse 2. It says, elect or chosen according to what? The foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. In this verse, which way does it go? That God chooses someone and therefore they become holy or God knows what they will decide, and therefore he chooses them. Is it the first or the latter? It's very clearly the latter in the passage, isn't it? Very clearly that the way God predestinates people to salvation is by knowing ahead of time the kind of decisions that they are going to make. Now turn back to Romans 11, which is speaking about this same idea. Who has God not cast away in verse 2? You know, it's the people that he foreknew. It's the people that he knew were going to be faithful to him. Observe briefly verse 5. Even so, then, at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. So, Revelation speaks about a remnant, doesn't it? In this verse, is the remnant a visible body or an invisible body? You know, if you read this passage, the verse just before, apparently Elijah thought he was the only one. But God said that there were 7,000 who had not bowed the knees to Baal. And this was an example of the remnant who have been chosen. Who does God choose? It's those that he knows are going to be faithful. The ones that he chooses are called the remnant. Who does Satan make war with? It's those that are the remnant, the ones who are foreknown to be faithful. Probably I'm getting too complex with too many ideas. Let me try to make this simple and move on. God never changed his plan that we spoke about a minute ago about scattering the unfaithful and gathering a remnant. This plan has never changed. Who God is gathering now are the ones he foreknew to be faithful. Turn to verse 13. Romans 11, verse 13. 
For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify mine office. If by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh, listen carefully, and might save, what does it say? Some of them. Probably you remember in your previous Bible say that it's not very far from this passage in the book of Romans that Paul talks about all Israel will be saved. But how many did he want to say in this verse? It was some. You can go to the next slide. I think we can put these thoughts together. Abraham's seed, they were blessed not for their genes, but for their training. They would be like him. This is very important. Turn to Genesis 18. We want to look in what way did God bless the seed of Abraham. When we understand how he blessed them, we'll understand who he blessed. Genesis chapter 18 and verse 19. The Bible says, For I know him that he will command his children and his household after him, and they will keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken to him. Can you see in the verse that there were conditions of God blessing Abraham's seed? What are the conditions in the verse of his seed being blessed? That they be like him, right? That they be like him in character. And why did God choose Abraham and his seed? You know, it was because of the way Abraham would train them. It was because of how he would teach that his seed could be chosen with him. If Abraham wasn't going to teach his seed to do right, they wouldn't be blessed with him. Is it clear enough in the passage? Look at Galatians 3. We're looking at Galatians 3 and verse 7. Galatians chapter 3. And we're looking at verse 7. Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are, what does it say? The children of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, in thee shall all nations be blessed. So then, they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. The idea is very simple. God never, ever promised to bless all of the genetic descendants of Abraham. He never did agree to do any such thing. This is why Paul says God hasn't changed anything, because I am an Israelite. Who did God agree to bless? It was the seed of Abraham that would be like Abraham. And since I, Paul, am like Abraham and God is blessing me, it proves that God has not changed his blessing. Nothing has changed in this respect at all. Turn to me in your Bibles to John 8. I can sense that we're going to have to move to three times this fast to get through this. But you probably prefer if I just skip stuff than move three times as fast. But you'll get the whole thing before the end of it in a handout. John 8, verses 33 and 37. They answered him, We be Abraham's seed, and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, You shall be made free? Verse 37. I know that you are Abraham's seed, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. Look at verse 39. They answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. Do you see that Jesus distinguishes between Abraham's genetic material and Abraham's children? And who are blessed? Abraham's children. How are they identified as his children? They do the same kind of thing that he did. They're like him in character. We can go to the next slide. 
So this is a summary of Abraham's covenant. We're not going to read it. But if you would read Genesis 17, 1-7, you'd find that the parties to the covenant are the Almighty God, Abraham, and Abraham's seed in their generations. And what you can't read over here is the, the condition of the covenant. Walk habitually before me and be thou perfect. That's what God promised, is that if Abraham's descendants would walk habitually before him and be perfect, that he, what would he do? God would multiply Abraham exceedingly. Abraham would be a father of many nations, exceedingly fruitful and an ancestor of kings. Jehovah, the Almighty God, will be the God of Abraham and of his seed. The terms walk habitually before me. And what about how long will this covenant last? The passage says it is an everlasting covenant. You can go to the next slide. So Abraham is blessed in these four passages. We can read Genesis 22 on the, str- on the screen. Because you have done this thing, in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Do we know Genesis 22? What is it that Abraham did that brought that fourth blessing? It's where he offered up his son Isaac. It's where he showed that he was dependent not on any natural train of events to fulfill God's promises, but he was dependent upon God to fulfill God's promises. This became an illustration of the whole difference between these two covenants. Ishmael was a dependence upon natural means. Isaac was a dependence upon promise. But even after the miracle of Isaac's birth, Abraham could have switched and said, now the miracle has happened, Now we can depend upon a natural train of events. Won't Isaac naturally have children? But when Abraham offered up Isaac on the altar, he showed that not only in the past, but also in the present, he was depending upon the miracle-working power of God to fulfill his promises. And this was the condition of him becoming a blessing to all nations, because all nations that would imitate this kind of dependence would receive the same blessing that Abraham did. Let's go to the next slide. So the summary of Abraham's covenant, his covenant was to bless all families. His covenant extended to his hired men, but listen, but not to his unbelieving children. This showed that it followed faith, not DNA. His faith stories are recorded as models. You understand the second idea, right? That Abraham's unfaithful children never did receive the blessings. His covenant is the everlasting covenant. Its blessings come on condition of habitual walking in God's presence and on condition of perfection. Where the first condition is met, that is the condition of walking habitually by faith, the second is imputed as a gift. These points in light print weren't in the passages, but we're going to get to them. Let's go to the next slide. Let's do the next slide again, I think. Oh, I'm sorry, it is there. Persons in Abraham's family may be cut off from the blessing through disobedience. Persons not in Abraham's family may join his family through accepting the covenant sign, now baptism, then circumcision. When it says, see other study. If you will go to audioverse.org, there is a sermon there called, I think it's called A Deeper Baptism. And there's an article connected to it called The Cost of the Covenant. That's what I'm referring to there. By using circumcision, Jews have been, excuse me, In this way, Jews have been cut off from the family as they refuse the sign of baptism. In this way, understanding Christians have been added. Those who live like Abraham are his spiritual children, the blessed seed who will inherit the promises. Let me come back to point two. I don't know if you understand what I mean about circumcision. Do you remember that a man who wanted to join the Israelites underwent the rite of circumcision? Maybe you've wondered what all of that was about, but it was a beautiful hint about the truths of the covenant and the gospel. 
it showed that DNA was not the condition of blessing. Does DNA follow circumcision? No. And if Abraham's children refuse to be circumcised, will the blessing follow them? Circumcision was a way of divorcing the blessing from the idea of genetics. And when those ideas were sufficiently separated, God could show the truth that those who only who walked in Abraham's faith were blessed with faithful Abraham. Let's go to the next slide. So the story of Levi is so interesting. You remember that Levi was a, a rash man, that he and his brother slaughtered an entire city because one of the leaders of that city raped his sister, that they did this by deception. They actually used the rite of circumcision as part of the process of their wicked deed, and God cursed them, and Levi was cursed by receiving no inheritance with his brothers. It was a terrible thing that happened to Levi. But then you go further in the Bible, and you find in Numbers 3, verses 12 to 45, that the Levites are entrusted with the priesthood. It's so interesting. Why were they entrusted with the priesthood? It's because they showed themselves at Baal Peor to be faithful in executing justice. Let me say this thought as a big picture again. God had given to Abraham's firstborn the priesthood. It had gone to, to his firstborn, but God never intended that the firstborn would have the priesthood because of his position and birth line. He intended that the firstborn would have the priesthood because he would be the first trained and the most trained. And if he wasn't faithful... When the firstborn were not faithful to their job of being teaching priest, God removed from the firstborn the priesthood and gave it to the Levites. Why to the Levites? Because they had shown themselves faithful in the position of fighting against and dealing with sin in the camp. If I could say that thought simply in application, no man should consider going into the ministry who will not deal plainly with sin in the camp. The story of Levi shows that not dealing with sin is unfaithfulness and that dealing with it is the first condition of being entrusted with that type of position. Turn with me in your Bibles to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi 3 is a review of these facts. We're looking at verse 2. That's a typo. We're looking at Malachi chapter 2 and looking at verse 4. And you shall know that I have sent this commandment unto you, that my covenant might be with Levi, saith the Lord of hosts. My covenant was with him of life and peace, and I gave them to him for the fear wherewith he feared me and was afraid before my name. The law of truth was in his mouth, and iniquity was not found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity, and did turn many away from iniquity. For the priest's lips should keep knowledge, and they should seek the law at his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you are departed out of the way, you have caused many to stumble at the law, you have corrupted the covenant of Levi, saith the Lord of hosts, that should be Malachi 2, verses 3 to 8, not 3, 2 to 8. What does this passage show? It shows what God is expecting out of the Levitical priesthood. He is looking for men who will be faithful to teach the law. Men who will speak about the law so consistently that when you want to know about the law, who will you ask? What does it say in the passage? Shouldn't it, it just come to your mind to go seek after a priest? So people just come looking for a Seventh-day Adventist when they want to know what God requires? It's the way God intended that by teaching the truth, by teaching the law, by 
by being faithful in the discharge of dealing with sin, that his work would be accomplished through the priesthood. This is why he gave it to Levi. Were the Levites faithful according to verse 8? According to verse 8, the Levites had been unfaithful. That had been given to the firstborn. The firstborn were unfaithful and it was given to the Levites. Then what would happen if the Levites were unfaithful? Do you know the obvious happened? It was taken from them. And that's why we do not have a Levitical priesthood today. We can go to the next slide. So we've talked about these things. Levi had a curse before his seed had a covenant. God used his strong sense of justice. This is the way God works. The things that are wrong in our life, yet God is able to take those problems and to work with power to turn them into strengths. Did God do that with Levi? What was his curse? His curse came, yes. I think it was two slides back, but it's not in my head. And if it wasn't, I don't. God used Levi's strong sense of justice. That sense that would lead him to destroy all those people. Is a sense of justice a virtue? It is, but it was combined with his rash, wicked, lying, murderous design. What did God do for Levi's descendants? He removed that wicked, murderous, lying use of the strong sense of justice, cultivated the virtue that was there until he could use it for himself. The covenant of the teaching priesthood was transferred from the firstborn to the tribe of Levi. They were faithful in stemming apostasy. They feared to offend God. Their blessing was not irrevocable. It had been returned to a curse by the time of Malachi, but it would never be wholly revoked. We're about to get to that. Let's go to the next slide. Can you read sideways? Psalm 89, verses 20 to 36, is a long passage about the covenant God made with David. It is a fascinating covenant. These are points you'll find if you read it. His foes would be defeated and would be plagued. He will retain mercy and faithfulness from God. He will claim childlike dependence on God. He will be like the firstborn, higher than the kings of the earth. This is a never-changing covenant. His throne will be everlastingly stable. His seed will be everlasting stable. And these points in black are the most amazing parts of this passage. If erring, they will be disciplined, not rejected. God's love to them will not be diminished. David's covenant is an incredible covenant. Can you see? We haven't read it, but I told you what's there. You'll have to check it out yourself. If I told it to you true, David's covenant was not dependent upon the faithfulness of his children. In fact, his covenant specifically made provision for their unfaithfulness. What would God do with their unfaithfulness? He would discipline them and bring them back to himself. This is why Acts 13 speaks of the, what kind of mercies of David? The sure mercies of David. That is, mercies that, that are more certain than the faithfulness of God's people. Let's go to the next slide. So David was promised a never-ending dynasty. It was not conditioned on the faithfulness of his children. In fact, the covenant provided for their correction when unfaithful. It was not conditioned on the natural life of his posterity. In fact, it made provision for a resurrection. I didn't show that to you, but that's what Acts 13.34 is about. Acts 13.33 and 34 talks about the resurrection of Jesus, that he was raised from the dead, and that was God giving him the sure mercies of David. In other words, what are the sure mercies of David? A resurrection. God would defeat David's enemies, they would be plagued, they would be destroyed. David would be made the firstborn of God, that is, the inheritor of the birthright of God. Let's go to the next slide. David would receive mercy and faithful help. David would be granted childlike dependence on his father God. 
David would rule over all the kings of the earth. Next. So Abraham and David and Levi. We need to look at this passage. Turn with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah 33. Jeremiah chapter 33. And we're looking at verses 17. We probably won't read it all. Verse 17. For thus saith the Lord... David shall never want a man to sit upon the throne of the house of Israel. Neither shall the priest, the Levites, want a man before me to offer burnt offerings and to kindle meat offerings and to do sacrifice continually. And the word of the Lord came unto Jeremiah, saying, Thus saith the Lord, If you can break my covenant of the day and my covenant of the night, that there should be not the day nor night in their season, Then may also my covenant be broken with David my servant, that he should not have a son to reign upon the throne, and with the Levites, the priests and ministers. As the host of heaven cannot be numbered, neither the sand or the sea measured, so will I multiply the seed of David my servant, and the Levites that minister before me. Isn't it an incredible promise? Look at verse 25. Thus saith the Lord... If my covenant be not with the day and night, and if I have not appointed the ordinances of heaven and the earth, then will I cast away the seed of Jacob and David my servant, so that I will not take any, excuse me, I will not take any of his seed to be rulers over the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for I will cause their captivity to return and have mercy on them. If I can summarize what we just said, God said these covenants are everlasting, They will not and cannot be broken. They will be fulfilled, guaranteed, as surely as the day follows day. Next slide. The possessors of the covenants. I'm describing here these three covenants. There's the holy nation covenant made with Abraham, the priesthood covenant made with Levi, the kingship covenant that was made with David. But in every case, it was made not only with them, but with their seed. The seed of Abraham, the seed of Levi, the seed of David. Jesus is the son of Abraham, the son of David, and the firstborn in God's family. Do you understand the beginning of what we're looking at here? Jesus inherited these covenants. These were not conditional covenants. They were given to those that were like these men in character, And in the characters that qualified Abraham to bless a nation, that qualified Levi to do the priesthood, that qualified David to be king, Jesus had those qualities. He inherited their covenants. And as we are children of Jesus, like him in character, we inherit these very same things. Let's look at these three passages. Hebrews 2, verses 16 and 17. Hebrews 2, verses 16 and 17. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it was appropriate for him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Let's look at Romans 1, verse 3. Romans 1, verse 3. The Father teaches concerning His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was made, what does it say, of the seed of David. What did we just read in Hebrews? He was of the seed of... Abraham. He was of the seed of Abraham and was a faithful priest. Here he's the seed of David. And now Galatians 4, verses 4 to 7. My brother Rosario preaches with more gusto than I do. Galatians 4 and verses 4 to 7. 
I'm not ashamed. I'm just hearing him. (laughs) But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law to redeem them that were under the law that he might that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore, you are no more a servant, but a son. And listen, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. The idea in this picture is a simple one, and I love the picture for its simplicity. Has something changed in the last 6,000 years? Not really. God made a covenant with Abraham and his seed, but not with his genetic seed, with those that were like him in character. Also with Levi and with David. That covenant was to show the kind of people that God can bless, the kind of people he can bless to be his holy nation, those who walk habitually before him, the kind that he can bless to be his priesthood, those who deal faithfully with sin, the kind of people he can bless to be in charge or to take leadership in his work. It's those who have a heart like his own heart. By choosing these men and giving stories that modeled their faith, he allowed the truth to keep our attention long enough perhaps to change us that we could become like them in character. The truths of their lives have an effect on us. It's that It's no cliche, even if we say it a thousand times, that by beholding we become changed. It's the reason God made these covenants. It was to change us so that we could be blessed like these men. Next slide. The summary of the personal covenants. Abraham, Levi, and David were given irrevocable promises. Their children would become a blessed and holy nation, a nation of priests and kings. But the promise included spiritual descendants, even those having no blood relation, when they accepted the covenant. And the promise excluded unfaithful persons, even if they carried a blood relation. Jesus inherited naturally and spiritually the covenants of Abraham and David. Jesus became a spiritual inheritor of the priesthood, not from Levi, but from Levi's predecessor, the firstborn priesthood. You understand that last point? Where did Levi get the priesthood? Wasn't it from the priest from the firstborn? Was Jesus Jesus a Levite? No, but the Levites had been unfaithful. So Jesus took back the priesthood from the order of Melchizedek, who was still in that time when the priesthood was devolving on the firstborn. Let's go to the next slide. I think if I do this again, I won't use sideways text. (laughs) Turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus 19. We're looking at verse 4. We're talking now, we're beginning to introduce the idea of the Old Covenant. I really haven't spoken about the New Covenant, but really everything I've said so far is about the New Covenant. But we're looking for a moment about the Old Covenant. Exodus 19 and verses 4 to 6. You have seen what I did unto the Egyptians and how I bear you on eagles' wings and brought you unto myself. Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant... Then you will be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak unto the children of Israel. I would like you to see in this passage that in Exodus 19, God offered the everlasting covenant to Israel. Do you see that he offered the covenant made with Abraham? the covenant of the priesthood, the covenant of the holy nation, it was offered to them? There's no kingly offer here because Jesus is the king of this nation. But really, they're under kings, aren't they? A, what does it say? A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 
Jesus being the king. Jesus offered this to them. Look at verse 9. And the Lord said unto Moses, Lo, I come unto you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with thee, and believe thee forever. And Moses told the words of the people unto the Lord. Do you see what God was looking for in verse 9? Can you see that he was looking for a heart religion? He was looking for faith. In verse 8, the people promised that they would obey. God had worked mightily to show them that they were incapable of doing anything without him. At the Red Sea, they saw it. In the plagues on Egypt, they saw it. With the manna, they saw it. With the smoking Mount Sinai, they saw that they were helpless and dependent. God was trying to lead them into a dependent relation, but they didn't get it. And so they said, we will do. Turn with me in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 5, verse 27. Deuteronomy chapter 5 and looking at verse 27. Go thou near and hear all that the Lord our God will say and speak thou unto us all that the Lord our God has spoken unto thee and we will hear it and do it. Do you see the impact of Mount Sinai on the people? It created in them a felt need for an intercessor. Can you see that in the verse? It created in them a felt need for a prophetic ministry that they no longer thought that they could communicate directly with God. Mount Sinai succeeded in scaring them into wanting an intercessor, to scaring them into wanting a prophetic ministry to get the word. This was what it was intended to do. If you've ever wondered why God did those things, this was why. Look at the next verse. Verse 28. And the Lord heard the voice of your words when you spake unto me. And the Lord said unto me, I have heard the voice of the words of this people, which they have spoken unto thee. They have well said all that they have spoken. The promise to obey God must never be spoken of as a mistake. Even when coming from an unconverted heart, even when coming from someone who can't possibly do it, the promise to obey is much better than the alternative, a decision to give up or to not do right. Did God commend them or rebuke them for saying they would obey? He commended them. Now look at the next verse. Oh, that there were such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always. What was the condition of Abraham's covenant? It was to walk habitually before God and to be perfect. What was God looking for? A heart religion, a dependence that would be enduring. And did they have it? Can you tell God was looking for it? The summary of what I've said so far is that the old covenant was never intended by God to be the end of the matter. God never made this covenant with the idea that it was sufficient. Do you follow this so far? He was looking for something more. Let's go to the next slide. In this covenant, each generation was to hear the same stories and to hear the same law. If they would accept a changed heart and steadfastness, they would qualify for the better covenant founded on better promises. This is what God said about the Ten Commandments. He said that you should teach these to your children. Teach them to your children. Tell them the stories. Every generation was to hear the same thing. Why tell them the stories? Why give them the law? Because if they would submit in heart, God could do for them what he did for Abraham. And if not, then there would be another generation of ritual keepers that God would not be able to bless. Let's go to the next slide. We want to come to some questions that I know that I had for years, so some of them maybe you've had. Question, what is the relation of the Ten Commandments to the Sinai Covenant? 
Are you aware that many people are leaving the Adventist church over this question? The, the, the etiology of the disease goes like this. Suddenly they discover that in the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments are the Old Covenant. Then they realize that the Seventh Adventist Church teaches that we should keep the Ten Commandments. And then they have an epiphany. They realize, I am under the Old Covenant. And then they leave the church to have a New Covenant experience. Has anyone here ever known anyone that has followed this series of events? I see about nine hands. Answer. The Ten Commandments were revealed in a powerful display intended to create a healthy fear of God and a healthy feeling of moral inadequacy. Did they have a part to play in the Old Covenant? They didn't accomplish what God intended, but they did have a purpose. They represented the receiving duties of Abraham's everlasting covenant. They showed how to walk habitually and how to be perfect. What was Abraham's condition? Wasn't that it? To walk... Don't the Ten Commandments show us how to live? They show how to, how to fulfill Abraham's covenant, our part. By promising mercy... We need to look at that. Turn me your Bibles to Exodus 20. Exodus 20, and we're looking at verse 6. Exodus 20 and verse 6. And showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. This, I must say, has become one of my favorite passages in the entire scripture. I like it because it's inside the Ten Commandments. Isn't it part of them? Can you see in this verse an answer to a few questions? Can we earn our way to heaven? What does it say in the verse? We need... Both answers are right. Okay? We need mercy. And our experience must have love. Can you see in this verse that it's not enough to have a legal religion? Not enough to keep the commandments, we must love God. But also that it's not enough to have a sentimental religion. That we must have the love of God combined with our obedience. But even when we have both of those, that we haven't earned anything that we still require. Isn't it a beautiful passage? As simple as can be. By promising mercy, the second commandment, in the second commandment, and revealing the power of God's word, that's the fourth commandment, the Ten Commandments promoted faith and love. We're asking, what is the relation of the Ten Commandments to the Sinai Covenant? This is only the first half of the answer. The first half is that they promoted the New Covenant. The Ten Commandments were intended to promote faith and love and dependence a heart experience. They were well designed for this. The law of the Lord is perfect. Doing what? You got it. Next slide. But there's another answer. The Ten Commandments did not, however, give life. That's just paraphrasing Galatians and Romans, right? The Ten Commandments condemned those claiming Abraham's covenant without meeting the conditions of faith and love. By condemning them, the law showed them their need of a Savior. And this was God's way of leading individuals into the experience of being Abraham's everlastingly blessed seed. This idea is not complex, but let me try to say it again. In chapter 19, the people say, we will obey God. But you know it's not true. So God gives them the Ten Commandments. This is what they promise to obey. The Old Covenant is their promise to obey the Ten Commandments, and the Ten Commandments is what they promise to obey. That's the Old Covenant. But what does the Old Covenant do for them? It shows them that they fail to receive the covenant they're claiming. The Ten Commandments were a powerful, needed blessing. They were the, the transition tool to help people with an old covenant self-dependence to realize how essential it was that they have a new covenant dependence upon God's power. Next slide. 
The Ten Commandments were the Sinai Covenant. They were a commanded covenant incapable of blessing the disobedience of unconverted persons. Exodus 34, 28, And the Lord wrote upon the tables the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Is it wrong to say that the Ten Commandments are the Old Covenant? You know, it's not wrong. But it's wrong to have the idea that the Old Covenant was an end in itself. The Ten Commandments were the Old Covenant that was intended to lead a person into a New Covenant experience. They were a perfect gift from heaven designed to show a man that he was condemned and not qualified to receive the blessings that he was congratulating himself as if he would receive. Next slide. What is the relationship of the sanctuary services to the Sinai covenant? We've answered this question somewhat already. It is not really possible to separate the two. When the covenant is ratified the first time, that's in Exodus 24, 7 to 8, the terms are in a book that includes references to sacrifices and to feast days. When it is verbally renewed in Exodus 34, the tent has already been set up outside of the camp. When the sanctuary tent is set up, is set up, its most holy place is a hollowed receptacle for the Ark of the Covenant. And this protects the Ten Commandments and the Book of the Law. I can try to summarize these ideas, which themselves are summaries, like this. When God gave the Ten Commandments and the people said, we're going to obey, God came after and indicated that if they sinned, there were some sacrifices they would need to do. Can you see in that instruction that God did not take their promise at face value? Then he set up a sanctuary service that would deal with the sins of the entire nation. What was the sanctuary? It was part of a system to show people that self-dependence would never work. You know, it was part of the Old Covenant. It was given to them as a gift, that part of the Old Covenant that was intended to lead them to the New Covenant experience. The Ten Commandments, combined with the promises of mercy and of forgiveness in the sanctuary, was all a system designed to teach this man that he needs a mediator, he needs a savior, he must have one or he's not going to make it. This was the function of the Old Covenant. Next slide. Why did God agree to such a covenant? By such a covenant, I mean one that involves so much blood. And let me pause here for a moment, because I don't know how much blood I can get before we're done. Have you ever thought through why God required so much animal sacrifice? It makes sense why Abel would need to slay a lamb. But why millions of animals slain? Why feasts that involved slaying a score of animals over the course of a week? Have you ever thought about why so much quantity of blood? Wouldn't it have been sufficient to have one sacrifice and then tell everyone about how it happened? The answer is the same as how we started in this lecture. Truth does not affect us when we know it. It affects us when we think about it. And God filled the experience of the Hebrews with continual reminders of the blood sacrifice of Jesus so that they would have to think about it daily, every morning, every evening, continually, with special times of special focus, several times every year, every year, it was to have their attention always so it could make them into a holy nation. What a mistake it would be for Christians if when the blood sacrifices came to an end, because Jesus had given his life on Calvary, the cross would receive less continual attention in our experience than the sacrifices had to receive in theirs. If that did happen, our religion would become as hollow as theirs did, though it was based upon a real sacrifice and not a mere picture of one that was to come.
It is better to be condemned by the law than it is to feel unobligated to keep it. The world is divided into two categories, those without law and those judged by the law. I'm speaking down here of Romans 2, but I don't think you can even read the top line of that. Romans 2, 12 to 13, you have a Bible. Turn up in your Bibles to Romans 2. Romans 2 and looking at verse 12. For as many as have sinned without law shall also perish without law. Verse 12 shows that the case of a man who knows no moral obligation is hopeless. Is my time already up? I see lots of people walking. It is. I'm going to take three more minutes. Let me just choose which three minutes to take. Just a moment. Turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians 4. Galatians 4 and looking at verses 21. There is a box near the back that has a handout that has 101 slides printed out. And I think that we've gone over approximately 25 of them today. So if you're looking for something more, you would want to get the handout. Galatians 4, verse 21, I'm not there, teaches that there was an allegory made of Abraham and Hagar and Isaac and Sarah and Ishmael. It was a simple allegory, a story that shows that when Abraham had a promise, but depended on human effort to fulfill the promise, what was the promise? That he would be a blessing to all nations. When he depended on human effort, when he worked naturally, that it produced bondmen. Aren't the children of slaves slaves? That was an illustration of our experience. We have God's promises. We believe that they're true. Didn't Abraham believe when he worked to have Ishmael? He believed the promise, but was depending on human effort for its fulfillment. And that belief combined with that dependence just did not... Well, it did something, didn't it? It produced antagonism against those who were doing the right. But when Abraham, the very same man, depended on divine power, there was a miracle birth. Do you see why God shows this as an illustration? What happens to us when we depend upon divine power for the fulfillment of the promises? Do you know what we have? It's a miracle birth. It produces free men, and the free men, unlike the others, are heirs to what God wants to give. According to Paul, this is a summary of the two covenants, the Sinai covenant and the new covenant, which is the everlasting covenant, the one made with Abraham, with Levi, with David, the one we inherit through Jesus, when by the power of the word of God, we imitate them in character, imitate him in character, when his life has our attention and is changed in that way. Let's kneel for a closing prayer. Our Father in heaven, I thank you for the old covenant, the one that shows self-deluded people their real condition, the one that brings men to their knees and leads them to trust in you. And I thank you even more for those better promises that make the new one available, the promise that we can be forgiven. The promise that we can have a new heart. The promise that you can make us free men and heirs of all that you've offered to give us through Jesus. I ask you for these gifts and that they might continue. In his name, amen. This media was produced by Audioverse and Hope Media Ministry for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. 
If you would like to listen to more great media like this presentation, or if you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. You can also find great witnessing media at audioverse.org and at hopevideo.com.